Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. But open your Bibles up to Malachi. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. And if, if you know how we typically go about doing things in our sermon time together, we try to walk through verse by verse uh, and understand each verse in its context. And you might be thinking about how all of these verses are several verses for us to normally tackle, but I'll, I'll assure you today, I'm hoping to condense these down for you to give you a concise understanding of these passages and yet at the same time explain the text in some detail. Before we, we read our text together today, uh, I, want, I want you to have a, a certain perspective as we approach this text. Um, I was raised in a context in which both of my parents owned their own businesses, and they instilled in me uh, earning money and saving money. These were principles that I was taught from a very young age. Uh, they had taught me to save money so well that when I went off to, to college, I had an entire year's worth of tuition saved up in a savings account. Um, and they had taught me to be sparse with, with spending the money that I saved. But when I got to college, I began to doubt whether or not the way that my parents had taught me to utilize the resources that I had was actually the best way to go about using them. And um, if you know my story, I grew up in a small town where the best pizza was served at a gas station. And for the first time in my life, I lived in a city that had restaurants other than Applebee's and McDonald's. And that food was delicious. And I got to go to an actual mall for the first time. And the clothes were nice. And I was not paying attention to how much pizza and sweaters and shoes I was buying. And after a short amount of time, the first semester was done, and the second semester worth of tuition came due. And I went to go check the balance of my savings account, and I had spent more than half of the money that I had saved. You see, what happened in that moment is that the little things that my parents had taught me over time mattered when you added all them up. That what actually happened in that, heart, in that moment is my heart was revealed in terms of what I wanted to do and what I thought was right. My heart wanted to live a certain way, and my behavior followed. And let me just suggest to you that what I think the text is going to reveal today is that you and I can fall into the same trap when it comes to God and our worship of Him. You see, God cares about us as his children, and he cares about all the little details, especially when it comes to how we worship him with our lives. He cares about every moment of our lives. He cares about how we use our resources. He cares about the very condition of our hearts. With this perspective in mind, I want to invite you to stand with me for a reading of the Word if you're able to. We are going to read several verses. Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6, says this, 
A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, who or where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not be able to kinder fire upon my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, weary, what a weary task this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept from your hand, or shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For, his, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. This is a reading from the word of God. You may be seated. You see, what we see in this particular text today is that our worship matters to God. It matters to him in both the condition of our heart and how we go about worshiping him. 
right out of the gate, one thing that we need to have very clear is that God cares about your worship. And have you ever considered how we know what we know about God? We can't actually know anything about God unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. And we thank the Lord that he has. He has revealed us to him, he's revealed himself to us in the Bible. We can actually know, you can actually know what God is like. And not only can we know what he is like, we can know how he expects to be worshipped. Unlike many pagan religions who would do ritual sacrifices, cut their own bodies, or any number of different things they would do to try to worship their gods and earn their favor, we can know from the Bible exactly what God expects from those who desire to worship and follow him. And this should encourage in us a a great rejoicing that, that God is not so far off that we cannot know him or what he expects of us. In fact, he is personal and he has revealed himself to us in his word. But because God has gone to great lengths to reveal himself to us, those who attempt to worship him, contrary to his word, actually dishonor him. And when we understand what God is like, one thing becomes very clear to us, and that is that God is the only one who deserves our worship. He is the only one. And when we see what, his, what he is like, the worship of God must be taken seriously. But what we're going to see in this text today is that worthless worship dishonors God and actually reveals our hearts. In the book of Malachi, God has, God has already revealed one significant truth about himself, that he loves his people. And can you just rejoice in that for a moment, that, that if you are a child of God and you know the forgiveness that Jesus Christ gives, that if no one else in this world loves you, God loves you. And this should be an incredible truth and rejoicing in our hearts In verse 6 of chapter 1, he goes so far to express his love in the sense that he sees his people as his children that he loves. He refers to himself as a father. It's not only in the book of Malachi that he calls himself Israel's father, but he does this many other places. One of the most important places is in Deuteronomy 32.6. In Deuteronomy 32, 6, God says this, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and established you? In this text, God describes himself as Israel's father who gave them life. But he gives them a similar rebuke here in that he appears, or that it appears they are ungrateful for both their physical and spiritual life that God the Father has given to them. But God is different than any other father that we could have in that he demands us to honor him by worshiping him. And following the form of Malachi, the Israelites question the fatherly creation and protection of God. They ask, how have we despised your name as our father? We're going to hear a sermon on a parallel passage in a few weeks, but Luke chapter 4, verse 46 is a concise explanation of the rebuke the Lord is giving. 
Luke 6.46 says, Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I tell you? Now remember, the, the Lord has revealed himself to us in his scriptures and what he expects us to do. So he's not asked them to do something that they do not understand. And just to be clear, in verses 7 and 8 of Malachi chapter 1, he's going to explain how they have despised his name. They have despised his name by offering sacrifices on his altar that were forbidden by the law. Deuteronomy 15:21 and Leviticus 22, 20 through 25, detail the exact explanation of the laws they have violated. Here's what it says. But if it has a blemish, blemish the, the sacrifice that they're about to offer, if it has a blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So the people know, and God has clearly told them, that the offering that they were to offer needed to be perfect without any blemish at all. The offering was to be offered on what verse 7 calls the Lord's table or the altar that is pictured in Ezekiel 41:22. Now, it might seem strange at first as to why God is so concerned about the purity of the, off of the offerings on the altar. But to understand the seriousness of the situation is to understand the significance of the altar. The way that Malachi calls it the Lord's table is to remind us that it was a picture of a meal shared between two covenantal people, two covenantal parties. So to despise the table, the altar, by offering a less than worthy offering is to despise the covenant that the table and the offering represent. In the grand scheme of the covenant, the Lord is asking for very little in terms of all that he has done for them. This reveals the fact that their hearts were actually worshiping something other than God. Because what you ultimately love is what you will worship. And what you worship will be expressed by your actions. Let me say that to you again. What you ultimately love is what you will worship. And what you worship will be expressed by your actions. God illustrates this here by saying they wouldn't bring the same gift to their governor because they had more honor, more fear, and ultimately more worship of those who were over them in a political sense than they did their father, creator, and sustainer. So God continues, and he tells them no worship is better than false worship. At this point, God, their heavenly, loving Father, shows his incredible grace and mercy by calling on them to repent and turn back to this gracious, loving, forgiving Father. But this call to repentance has with it a sense of urgency that the Lord God of hosts, the one who has power over the whole universe, will not extend repentance and forgiveness to them forever. In fact, he goes so far to say that it would be better for the doors of the temple to be closed immediately for them to show so much contempt to the Lord by offering sacrifices that did not honor them. Listen to the picture that's being painted here. He is literally saying, you might as well close the doors to my home, the temple, 
because your father is not there to receive your worship at his table. This is heavy. And we need to stop for a moment to really understand this. If you think that you can worship the Lord in the way that seems right to you, the Lord does not receive that worship. And he will not keep himself close to you. And in these verses, we hear some of the most terrifying words in all of Scripture. I, the Lord, have no pleasure in you. We're going to make some more specific application in a moment, but friend, you have to consider this right now. Are you attempting to worship the Lord in your own way? And if so, hear these words. The one that we were created to honor and glorify has no pleasure in you. And not only is God not pleased with you, but he will punish those who honor him with their mouth, but do not worship him in their hearts and with their lives. Malachi ends this section of these verses in chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, by telling us that God will punish false worship. God begins to paint a picture of the truth that he will be worshipped from east to west, from the rising to the setting of the sun. His name will be honored among the nations, and he will draw to himself those who worship him in spirit and truth. He's painting a contrast here of what has become virtually pagan practices of his people with the pure worship that will be offered to him one day. There's two ways to, to take what's being said here. First, the picture that is potentially being painted is of the perfect offerings given to King Jesus in the millennium when he will rule and reign as the perfect king when he comes back. That's, that's the first way to take it. The second way is this, that it's a picture of salvation being offered to all people. You see, the, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ will be extended to all nations and all tribes and all tongues. And this is hard, because as we read passages like this, there should actually be a sense of mourning that we feel, but at the same time, an incredible rejoicing, because the rejection of God by the nation of Israel has to happen in order for us as Gentiles to be grafted into the vine of Abraham. And again, Malachi reminds the people of God that they have taken what is to be separate and holy and dedicated to the Lord, and they've made it common and despised. And instead of turning to the Lord in repentance, the people of Israel describe this little thing, this offering, this worship that the Lord has asked them to do as something as wearisome and a burden. But the Lord continues to press into them about this issue, this offering, this life of worship that is to be dedicated to the Lord. 
this offering that is his and his alone. And when the people of God refuse to give God what is his, they have cheated the king of the universe from what is rightly owed. They have broken the covenant. And as a result, this text tells them that they will be cursed. And instead of the blessing that was to be theirs alone, it will now be extended to all nations. But friend, this is where hope enters into the picture. Because in the new covenant that is made in Jesus' blood, that's confirmed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has offered the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. So no more blood sacrifices have to be offered on the altar. He died once and for all for our sins. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that these sacrifices don't have to continually be offered for, the, for our repentance and the forgiveness of sins, but Jesus Christ, God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, offered his life on the altar for our sins. But in return, he does ask for a sacrifice from us. Romans chapter 12. If you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And a person who reads this without understanding what Jesus Christ is our, has done on our behalf might be tempted to respond in the same way that the Israelites responded to the sacrifice that was required of them to worship the Lord. And they might say, this is wearisome. This is a burden to give my entire life to Jesus Christ. But friends, when we look upon the glory of Jesus Christ and everything that he has done for us, for him to demand our lives as a living sacrifice to worship him is small in comparison to what he has done. Now, now let's flesh this out a bit. What, what does this then mean? What does it mean to offer your life as a living sacrifice to, every, to the Lord? What does this mean? It means that everything in our life is now to be done as an act of worship to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 makes this so very clear. Whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're going to consider this in more in depth in just a moment, but this means that Worship is now not isolated to an altar or to a temple, but we are the temple who offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God everywhere that we go. And in the moment that we might be tempted to think that this is burdensome, at the same time, what a beautiful gift that God has given to us that everything, everything that we do can now be done to worship the Lord. 
that your entire life can be a sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord, and he will be pleased in the offering that you have given. But before we we go to more application, Malachi has more to say about worship. But this time he's going to shift in chapter 2 from the people of Israel to the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel, the priests. You see, God doesn't only care about your worship, but he cares in particular about the worship of those who lead his people. And the same issues that persisted in Malachi's day persist even today. There are many who are considered trustworthy sources that say things about God, but it's not actually what God has said about himself in his word. There's any number of places you could go to hear supposed things about God, social media, radio, other people who claim to be Christians, people who present themselves as experts on the topic of God, But what they say about God doesn't actually come from the place where God has chosen to reveal himself in his word. And what we find in this particular text in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is that God will punish unbiblical leaders. Now, I can tell you, for me, in reading these particular verses, there is an extra weight that I feel today to communicate the word to you truthfully, knowing that if I don't, that the Lord will hold me accountable for my preaching and teaching of the word to you. And so with very much a sense of fear and trembling, I'm going to move into these verses. Because what we find here is God was speaking directly to the people of Israel in the first verses, but now shifts his attention to the priests. He speaks to them, he speaks to them, giving them two conditional clauses. If they will not listen, and if they will not take to heart. He's doing something here that's common in the Old Testament. He's promising blessings for obedience obedience and curses for disobedience. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, it has a very similar tone as verse 14 of chapter 1. God tells the priest that, in fact, he has already cursed them for their disobedience. God also tells them that this curse will not just affect them, but their children as well. And there's a reason for this. And I'm going to pause for a moment to speak in particular to the men who are present here today. Because what we're going to find in this particular text is that what you lead others to do, what they follow you in doing, has the potential to be generational in nature. That what you teach your sons and daughters today, what you lead other people do, will have impacts in the future. And so we must be very careful in how we lead others in godliness or away from God himself. But in this particular passage, he uses a very graphic illustration to paint a picture for his punishment of them. He says he's going to put dung on their faces. And at first, this sounds very tongue-in-cheek, but the picture that he's painting here is a picture that's consistent with the incorrect offerings. You see, in a normal sacrifice, the dung from the sacrifices would be carried outside of the camp and burned. Exodus 29, 14 details this practice. Here's the picture that's being painted. The priests and their offspring will be disgraced and put outside of the camp. 
It's a picture of them no longer being under the protection and care of the Lord. They're disgraced, they're outside of the camp, and ultimately burned. The priests and their offsprings now find themselves under the judgment of God. And the reason that they find themselves under the judgment of God is because leaders must teach the truth, and they don't do that. Remember, the way that we know who God is and what he expects of us is through the word. In Exodus 6, 16 through 25, we have a list of the sons of Levi, the Levites who were the priests of the nation of Israel. There are two very important names in this list that help us understand what the covenant of Levi is. Those two names are Aaron and Aaron's grandson, Phineas. And in Numbers 25, 10 through 13, we find that Phineas has been very zealous for the law of God. Because of his obedience to the law of God, God makes a covenant with the Levites through Phineas. The covenant is called the covenant of peace. Phineas took the law of God seriously. But the current priests have claimed the privileges of the covenant while neglecting the conditions of it, expecting God to keep his end of the deal even if they don't. In Moses' final blessing on Israel in Deuteronomy 33, 9 through 10, he reminds the Levites, who are to be the priests of God's people, that their responsibilities primarily included three things, teaching, praying, and offering sacrifices. It was expected that the, people, the priest would lead the people of God in worshiping him correctly. But instead, these priests were known for dishonest teaching, insincere prayers, and wrong sacrifices. You see, the people of God must know and live the word of God no matter their position in the house of God. And leaders must know the seriousness of who they represent. The priest was to be the trusted counselor who they would go to to receive knowledge and instruction from the Lord. The Old Testament is filled with instructions from the Lord for his people to receive instruction and counsel from the, the priests. Exodus 28.30, Deuteronomy 17.9, and on and on. Even what they wore was intended by God to encourage the people to see them as a trusted source of judgment. The priests were to rule on matters from the word of God as a messenger from God. But instead, they have done one of the worst things that a teacher of the word of God could do. Jesus words it this way in Matthew 8:16 or 18:6, excuse me. Matthew 18:6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This text tells us not only do they lead some astray, but they show partiality to others, allowing them to bring on sacrifices that are unworthy and treat them as if they are acceptable. Let me encourage you to hear the dual caution that is being given in this passage. First, if you venture to lead God's people and teach his word, 
You better know the word and believe it by doing it. But the second caution is this. Be careful. Be so careful what leaders you listen to and follow because not everyone who claims to know God truly does. But let's make some connections now to the New Testament. When we talk about the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, there should be an immediate tension that we feel. The tension of worshiping God and having our sins forgiven while knowing that we could never, or that sacrifices would never be enough. They would never be enough to appease the wrath of God. With mortal men offering temporary sacrifices, there seems to be no end to this. No true hope through the Levitical priesthood. But then we listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. Let these words fill you with hope. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, referencing Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Today, brothers and sisters, we have a true hope because we have a true great high priest. Jesus, who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins once and for all, and this great high priest now makes intercession for us with God the Father continually. But friend, if you are trying to live a good life, to offer sacrifices of your own making, you will never be able to do enough to earn the favor of God and to be forgiven of your sins. But there is hope today for you as well, because Jesus, our great priest, has offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for your sins. And he cries out to you today, just like he did to the people in Malachi's day, that he is gracious and merciful. And if you repent and turn to him, he will forgive you. But as we've done in the, the previous sermons, let's make some connections to one specific passage. Let's make some connections personally to our life. And I, I'm going to warn you. This is, again, one of those moments where I feel like I need to tell you, I love you. You remember that, right? Because if we practically apply and know the Word of God and allow it get into our lives, we might get our toes stepped on a little bit. So first, the, the first question we should be asking is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. What is the doctrines that are being taught in this passage? Let me suggest to you that there are three. A right doctrine of worship, namely that we are not the ones who get to determine how God is to be worshipped, but that he has told us in his word how is, he is to be worshipped. There's also a doctrine of repentance, that we are sinners who need to turn away from our sin. Repentance means to turn 180 degrees from our sin and turn to God. 
And then a, a big theological word that some of you may be familiar with, it's the word eschatology. That's a big word that just describes what will happen at the end of time. It is the study of last things, namely that God will judge the world and that he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And I want you to take some time this week. I want you to go back and review this passage while thinking about these three points of doctrine. Because doctrine is essential for the way that we live. If our doctrine, our knowledge about God is wrong, our living will be wrong, which means our worship will be wrong. But then then we need to ask the question, as we're doing this review of what the Scriptures actually teach, where does my thinking need corrected? We need to consider if we've accepted some unbiblical teaching about worship or repentance or eschatology. And let me suggest to you, I put worship number one on this for a reason. Because in the modern church, worship has been so confused and conflated versus what the Bible actually says worship is. Worship, let let me try to be as clear and concise as I can. Worship is not isolated to music. Worship encompasses the entire life of a believer. Can you worship God in music? Absolutely. But the time that you worship God is not limited to the time that we sing. Worship is life. But here's some questions to ask. This is where these are hard to consider. Because here's the question. Do I believe that there is some part of my life that does not have to worship God? And what I'm suggesting in this particular question is that every one of us has one section of our life, one section of our hearts and minds that we have kept for worship of self. And sometimes this area is difficult to identify. But here's the second question. Do I believe that there are sins that I can hide from God and avoid repenting of them? Do I believe that there is some part of my life that does not have to worship God? Do I believe that there are sins I can hide from God and avoid repenting of? Or do I believe the Lord could return at any moment? There are probably a lot of things that I would or wouldn't do if I thought the Lord was going to appear at this moment. It could radically change the way in which you live. Now, let's take this from the thought level to the behavior level. And in the same way, we need to ask these questions. These should already be in your notes. The question is, where does my behavior need reproved, right? The scriptures are uh, sufficient for doctrine, for correction, and reproof. So the question is, friends, are you currently living in sin? Do you have an area of your life in which you are being disobedient to the Word of God and continue living in it?
Here's the second question. Is there an area of my life where I am practicing false worship? See, as we continue to know the Word of God, we will know what He calls us to do to worship Him. These two questions, am I living in sin or am I practicing false worship, are very much akin to each other. Here's the third and and maybe the most significant of these questions. Am I willing to repent? Repentance has a behavior aspect to it. It is the turning away from sin and turning to living a life dedicated to God. But friend, you cannot hear these questions. You cannot see this text and allow these things to just go in one ear and out the other if you are to take the worship of God seriously. You must consider these in terms of your own life. But what is the instruction in righteousness in this passage? How are we instructed to live righteously going forward? Number one, know the Word of God and live the Word of God. Knowing the Word of God in our mind is only half of actually knowing the Word. The other half of knowing the Word is doing the Word. But, but here's where I want to challenge you, because what, what we have asked today may have seemed very overwhelming if you're actually going to consider your life and what you worship versus what you don't. Are you living in sin? Or are you living as an act of worship to God? And so here's, here's the final challenge. Once you've done this work of actually questioning and reviewing your life, l- let me challenge you to make one change. Because if I really consider my life, I could write out a whole list of the ways in which I have tried to hide sin from God, areas in which I'm not worshiping God fully, areas in which I need to improve and get totally overwhelmed with that list. But instead, what I want to challenge you today to do is to pick one item, either a sin to repent of or an act of worship to start doing that you will purpose to do today and the rest of this week that you will seek to make one change as an act of worship to God. And I want to encourage you again, friends, to be reminded that if God is who He has revealed Himself to be in His Word, then giving your entire life to Him as an act of worship is a small price to pay for what He has done for us. The God of the universe, in His majesty, in His glory, has come down from on high and given His life as the perfect sacrifice for you and me. There is no greater act of love than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross for our sins. And as a result, in a loving response to Him, we should gladly give our lives to Him. But let me just say again to you, friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ, as your Savior. He is calling you to repentance in this moment. He is extending to you the forgiveness that is offered to those who will repent and turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ as their one and only Savior. If you have not cried out to God and asked Him to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, you can do that right now. And the Bible tells us that he will forgive us, that he will adopt us into his family, and that he will make us into something new. 
And so I'm going to pray in a moment. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you know that there is an area that you are not worshiping God as well as you could or if you're living in sin, I want to encourage you to begin to repent as we go to God in prayer. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, as I begin to pray, I want to encourage you, if you feel led by the Spirit, to ask God to save you as well. So whether you're a believer or you don't know Christ as your Savior yet, I want to ask you to to stand and, and join me in prayer at this moment. Lord, how gracious and merciful you are to us. If we were to pile our sins up, the mountain of our sins would be overwhelming. And yet, in your grace and mercy, you have seen fit to offer your Son as a sacrifice, as a payment for these sins, so that we could have right standing and be part of your family. Lord, forgive us. I'm praying now on behalf of our our church, Lord, that you would forgive us collectively where we have sinned against you. We have not given you our best in worshiping you with our lives. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us and that you would help us to purpose today to take steps in in honoring you and worshiping you with our entire lives. Lord, help us to be reminded that you don't ask us to do something that you don't also empower us to do. Help us to know that your Holy Spirit is living in us to give us the strength to do the things that you've called us to. Use us as your church, as your people, to draw unbelievers to yourself, that they might see your love and your righteousness lived out in us. Help us, Lord. Help us to honor you as our Father. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.